You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't picked up a boot yet before the rut hits, if you're in need of a boot, you need to check out the Alpha Burley Pro. It is waterproof from top to bottom, and they're great for crossing creeks or walking through wet grass. And depending on what part of the country that you live in, they come in a variety of insulation options. So if you hunt in the south, you may not need any insulation. Or if you hunt in the north and you need a lot of insulation, uh, they come in a variety. They also come in a variety of camel patterns, uh, from plain to your favorite camel patterns from like uh, Sitka and other, other brands. So check out the Alpha Burley Pro today at lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Today we're going over the full story of my longbow doe from opening morning of Wisconsin and a recap of my experience and some of the lessons learned during the public land challenge in Minnesota with the hunting public and Dan and Joe from the Hunting Beast Forum. Before we start off, make sure and check out Arrow Hunter as an alternative to hunting from a traditional tree stand. During the public land challenge last week, we were hunting at some really steep hills and bluffs. Wearing my Arrow Hunter kite, and keeping all my camera gear and climbing method and a nicely padded backpack, I always felt totally comfortable with the amount of perceived weight I was carrying into the woods. Going the extra mile doesn't seem like that much of an extra chore when the gear is so lightweight and compact. Find out more about Arrowhunter Saddles at arrowhunter.us. Yeah, so far, pretty exciting start to the season, I'd say at least. Yeah, it looked like it. I mean, you got your public land traditional doe right off the bat. Yep, opening morning. It hurts me on social media to watch all the guys that are able to go out and do the early season hunts, the velvet hunts and whatnot early September, and I'm sitting around like, ah, got to wait a couple more weeks. But at least it's not as bad as some of the states that don't have October. You don't open until October. Yeah. I think most the trend has kind of been moving towards the the mid-September or, you know, late September opening time frame. I remember when I was a kid, most everything opened like the first week in October or even later. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, but the only thing that kind of sucks is just the fact that there's always so many mosquitoes yet that time of year. And being able to take care of the meat, you mm-hmm. know, because it's most of the places are still... 90s that time of year so if you make a bad shot you know and you have to let that deer sit for six hours or so you're you're in trouble at that point right especially down south i don't know how they do that some of the times i mean even up by us i mean we'll get into this but it was super hot even up here on opening weekend yeah so let's hear a little bit more about that recurve doe so was that your first you've taken a deer with your recurve before right no that was the first one 
First one with the recurve. I've shot at like one. You took one. I've shot at one other one, but I didn't hit it. So yeah, let's dive into it. Let's hear the story of it. Yeah. So basically, opening morning, I had a plan in place for where I was going to hunt, and my goal just kind of for that opening morning was I didn't want to go after any of the, the kind of you know big box spots, so to speak, because those are usually more afternoon sets for me. So I was like, hey, I'll get out there opening morning. I'll try and get in an area where I might see some does. And that was kind of my goal going into it. I wanted to see if I could get a, an opportunity at a doe. So I went to a public land area that I've had probably in total like five, six years of experience in. It's one of the first places that I started looking at in Wisconsin when I started to go to school to, in Minneapolis. So I knew how the terrain all played out. I've, I've turkey hunted there a lot. And a couple of the places I found turkey hunting – I've kind of marked on my, you know, GPS as sort of, you know, these could be early season, good deer spots. And in fact, even in the fall, I've seen some deer walking through some of those areas before during fall turkey hunting. And so I walked back into one of those areas just above kind of this, you know, big cliff, essentially that kind of funnels the deer movement. And near that cliff, you got a bunch of basically just Oak ridges. And so I got down to the area where I wanted to put my stand and I'm looking around with a headlight and I'm like, man, I do not remember this being so thick. It just looks so boxed in. Like there was one trail that didn't really have any fresh stuff that I could see in my headlamp. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back up to kind of those more open oak ridges and just set up there. Cause you know, early season, first day, good chance that there could still be some movement well after daylight. So I just started backtracking and the acorns were so thick that you could just you know, it was almost like you couldn't take a step without stepping on acorns and you could just stop and listen and you could just hear them falling all over the place. And so I just picked a spot based on kind of the topography where I felt like deer would go through. It was kind of like a little bit of a bench between kind of a higher ridge and just kind of that lower area where I was and just picked a tree and set up. I was probably three sticks high sitting in the saddle and first hour, hour and a half, it was pretty slow couple squirrels obviously with all the acorns but then finally I caught some movement and I had a basically a four-cornered doe come in and the way that they're originally headed it didn't look like they were going to give me a shot it looked like they were going to pass by a little bit out of range but then they eventually turned and started working kind of around me so when I first saw them they were kind of to my three o'clock in the tree as I was facing the tree and then they started working kind of toward my six o'clock getting closer as they did so and the doe was leading the way and so I was able to kind of turn on my platform and I got the camera arm basically swung around all the way to that, my left hip to be able to film. And so looking at my camera, I could basically see the LCD screen down my hip. It was just kind of hoping it was pointed in the right direction. And I got basically a, a shot at the doe where I drew back and I held and, and she didn't give me quite the best angle right away. And then eventually she took a couple steps forward. I got the shot I wanted. I shot and I missed. And it looked like it wasn't like a high or low miss. It was just the arrow literally went in front of her. And I don't think I hit any branches on the way out. I think what basically might have just happened is I might have just been a little bit off my anchor or something. You know, something wasn't quite right. I can remember going through kind of the mental process of getting a clean release and the release felt great. So the only thing I could think of is it just must have been a, a misalignment in how I was anchoring in my face and not really checking the string blur and all that kind of stuff that was causing a left and right variance. And so after the shot, she spooked, but it wasn't a hard spook. She went, you know, 15 yards, stomped the ground a few times, 
but then they just kind of started walking back slowly the direction they come from. And so at that point, I was getting another arrow knocked. I got the arrow knocked. Again, tried to aim the camera where I thought the deer were. And uh, drew back, did a little mouth bleat to get the deer to stop. And then I shot again. And it looked perfect left and right that time. And that time on that shot, I can remember seeing the string blur throughout my process. I can remember, you know, kind of going through the motions, going through the cycles. And I had that same kind of feeling of a clean release. But I also had the feeling of, you know, knowing that my left and right, my alignment was right. And I thought that I shot over the deer at first because all I can really see is my, my feathers. I'm not using lighted knocks with the traditional arrows. And so that arrow, I could just watch it as it was going through the woods. It disappeared. I couldn't see it anymore once it was over. You know, once it had crossed the plane of where the deer was, I couldn't see those fletchings anymore. So that was the last visual I kind of had of the arrow. I'm like, oh man, like that felt good. I don't know how I missed high on that. But then as she was running away, I mean, they took off hundred miles an hour at that point. And as she was running away, I could hear, hear her bleat a couple times as she was running. You know, and the only time I've ever heard deer do that in the past is when they're hit. So I was kind of like, you know, maybe I did hit her. I'm not, you know, hundred percent yet at this point, but I'll go down, I'll check for the arrow, all that good stuff. So I waited 20, 30 minutes, got down, started looking for the arrow. Couldn't find the arrow anywhere. And I started grid searching for that arrow. I knew exactly where she was standing. And I just started making little loops, essentially, you know, further and further back from where the shot had gone. I assumed that if I would have missed cleanly, it would have been right there. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I did hit the deer. It passed through and just skipped or did something. So I made even loops like 50 yards, 60 yards past where that deer was standing. I still couldn't find the arrow anywhere. And the ground was pretty clean. There were some leaves, but it was, you know, pretty bare dirt for the most part. And it was just a little bit of like, you know, deadfall and stuff that was basically laying on the ground that would have obstructed my view of the arrow, but I still didn't find it. So I went back to the scene of the shot again, looked a little bit closer and that's when I found the blood and I could see blood kind of on both sides of where that deer was standing. There's a little bit of blood on the entrance wound side and then the ground by the exit wound had a whole bunch of blood on the ground and on the leaves basically right in that area. So at that point I knew that it was a hit like for sure. And it was good blood. I just didn't have the arrow to kind of, you know, confirm. So I'm like, well, the only thing I don't know is how high I hit the deer. It could have been back straps, could have been one lung, could have been two lungs. I guess I really don't know at this point. All I know is that I didn't hear the deer crash. So I followed blood for probably, I don't know, 30, 40 yards to where it started getting thick. And again, knowing it was going to be hot. And knowing that I wasn't sure how far she went, I figured I'd probably be on the safe side rather than, you know, do anything else and potentially jump her and, and lose blood and have to make the tracking job a lot harder. And previous to this hunt, Shane and I had been talking about, you know, with the Cali Chronicles, he's like, Hey, if you get a deer go out of sight, let me know. I'll come bring Cali. We'll track her. So then I called Shane knowing that, you know, number one, I told him I'd like to give Cali the opportunity. But also, like, I might actually need this dog. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I just don't know how that how that turned out. So he got there probably 40 minutes later. And we went to the, the spot of the kill. And already, as we got up to that spot, Callie was already starting to get excited. Like, she knew that something was about to happen. Like, she could already smell the deer. And, you know, Shane goes, you know, like, find it or whatever he said, whatever his keyword was. I can't remember. But that dog went the first 150 yards, like, dragging Shane practically through through everything, you know, and we got to a spot essentially where it was right on 
the edge of a thicket where it looked like deer would be bedding kind of on that, on those hills. And there was a big pile of blood, like two big piles of blood, one where it looked like it was dripping off the deer side. And then another one where it looked like it might have been dripping out of the deer's mouth, but there was no deer. So I'm like, okay, it looks like either she bedded down here briefly or she just stood here for several seconds. And then it's like, okay, well now what? So then Shane just started making kind of, you know, loops, trying to get Callie come in from different directions, trying to figure out which direction this deer had gone away from there. And outside of that little, you know, thicket region, it was fairly open. So you could see, you know, a long ways, except for, you know, like the ferns and stuff. And so I was looking as well. And I just started making kind of semi-circles around that spot, you know, just to see if I could re-pick up the blood again, get Callie back on the right trail. And I made a, a loop about 20 yards from that spot. And then I saw the deer just laying there on the ground. So she must've stood there, you know, it's kind of like a last stand type of thing. And then just kind of stumbled out through that brush and just died right out in the open. So then that was it. I mean, it was the arrow actually, it entered really low, but it exited almost at the same height. So we got the bottom of both lungs and just nicked the, the bottom tip of the heart as well. So what was it? What was the distance on that second shot? Uh, it was probably pretty close to thirty yards. Okay. So the only it was strange because I was high enough at the tree yet at that point that you would think, based on the entry wound, it would have exited lower than it did. So we right. thought maybe the arrow hit the sternum and redirected and kind of kept on that same path. Not quite sure, hundred percent. Or she might have rolled. You know, kind of yeah, tilted her body. Reacted to. That's, that's run away that, from the, yeah, that's the only thing that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Especially being spooked. You would think that would probably be the case after the first shot. You know, she was kind right. of already on alert, right? She probably, and so she kind of yep. ducked to go away from the noise and that would have kept, you know, looking at her, that would have kept your entrance and exit about the same height. Yeah. Um, that's the so only you thing did that makes get sense. A, you did get a clean pass through though. Yeah. That we're assuming, I mean, there's, there's basically two things that could have happened. One is that it passed through the arrow skipped and we never found it. The other possibility is that the arrow passed through to where the broadhead made an exit hole, but the arrow didn't exit. And then she was just running and that arrow just got picked up by a branch and thrown somewhere along the, yeah. the blood trail. Either one of those scenarios is equally possible and we don't really know what happened. We tried looking for that arrow some more and never, still never found it. Yeah. 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 For anybody who's interested, you can go to Shane's YouTube channel and you can actually watch. You can watch Garrett's section of the hunt first, and then you can kind of jump over to Shane's channel and you can watch the uh, Callie's Chronicles where he brings the dog in and and runs it with Garrett. You can kind of see the whole thing. Like Garrett was talking about, it looked like they got into a thick section and, you know, there's a lot of blood there, obviously, but she couldn't pick up on where she had left that thicket. Um, whether she, like Garrett said, stumbled out of there or she just caught enough wind and decided to make one last death run out of there and then only made it a couple yards basically was it like 20 or 30 yards maybe from where she was uh yeah it wasn't far at blood all. was it wasn't far yeah so it's pretty interesting if you guys are interested i recommend go and watch the um the video where shane tracks it you can kind of you can kind of see i mean when she takes off when she actually gets on the trail she takes off and she's literally dragging shane and he's trying to keep up with her through some of the thick stuff yeah, it's pretty funny to watch because Shane just basically, I mean, he almost needs a hockey mask just to to keep up with the dog. He just gets dragged through the worst of the stuff. Yeah. And he did an, and autopsy, that, he did an autopsy video too. So we got the, there's a tracking video and then there's a separate autopsy video where 
yeah. I open up the deer and we kind of take out the lungs and the heart and take a look at everything. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. And after that, you guys kind of go through that and talk about, you know, what was hit, you know, and you can kind of see where you nicked just the very end of the heart. Yeah. Um, I was really you know, surprised, though, at how how little was actually cut. You know, it was like just the the bottom edge of those organs. There wouldn't You wouldn't yeah. have thought, based on the amount of tissue that was cut, that it would have been as lethal as quickly as it was. Right. And, I mean, that just goes to show, you know, sometimes you can get away with a lot with some of those hits. You know, you may nick a one lung, and sometimes that's all it takes. You know, sometimes you can center punch a lung, and you track that deer forever. I think of a lot of it has to do with just the hardiness of the particular deer that you're shooting at. You know, some of them go down easy, and some of them run for miles. Yeah, and... Yeah, like you said, the speed too, I think makes a huge difference. How many times do you shoot a deer and it just kind of, you know, trots off and, and stops and looks around for a few seconds versus if they take off a hundred miles an hour, you know, going as fast as they can until they finally crash, they're going a lot further, even though it could have been just, yeah, as, lethal of a, lethal of a, just as lethal of a hit. Yeah, most of the time with my traditional bow, I've had kind of, you know, they haven't went as far, you know, because the bow is just obviously quieter, but with a compound, you know, some of them, I had one deer that I still don't know how, I mean, I double lunged it and got the top of the heart and the deer probably ran 400 yards, but when it took off after the shot, it was gone. And I just imagined, you know, the same amount of time, it just ran as fast as it could for as long as it could. And then, you know, others, they just kind of like, Whoa, what was that? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of walk a few steps and then tip over. Yeah. I'd like to think if I would hit that deer in the first shot that she wouldn't have gone as far. I think the fact that she was already kind of spooked and in that second shot, I think she was ready to get out of there. So what was the distance on the first shot? First shot was probably inside of 20. And then you said you missed in front of her. Was that for you? Would that have been left or right? Which way was she facing? It would have been to the right. Been to the right. So for me, if that, that means if I don't have the anchor in to my face as much and that string blur is kind of sitting outside of the riser, that could cause that kind of a miss. Right. And that's the thing. It's, it's interesting that you can't really recall the first shot, but then you can recall the second shot much better in the detail aspect of it. Yeah. I think I was more relaxed for that second shot. Yeah. You got the nerves out and then you're like, all right, I really need to focus on the shot. Obviously it's a little bit farther, um, but you were able to bring everything back in and, and remember going through your shock sequence yeah you can even see in the video or i guess you can hear you can hear my my breathing get really heavy right before that first shot and at first i thought you were using the clicker as like a psychological trigger because i didn't hear the clicker go off on the first one but on the second one it was like maybe in your draw cycle the clicker went off and then i guess you let down and come back through the click again mm -hmm. um but yeah, I thought it was interesting that you just use it mostly as a draw check compared to a, a psychological trigger. Yeah. And maybe at some point I will start implementing it as more of a, a psycho trigger, but it seems like, you know, kind of my focus for this year was really trying to iron out the, the physical aspect of it and the form work. And then I think maybe next year I'll start to work on more of the, the psychological aspect of the draw, but the same, the same kind of thing regarding like a psycho trigger also kind of scares me with like a surprise release for like a compound when hunting just from the, the standpoint of what if that thing goes off when I'm not quite ready, when that thing's got its leg back or, you know, it takes a step right as I'm, you know, like those are, those are times when if I'm in control of when I release, then those are things I can hold off and say, okay, I'm going to hold off on this shot. I'm not going to shoot right now. 
Whereas, you know, with a a clicker or if you're shooting like a back tension release or a hinge release, if you're hunting, like those are things you can't control. And that always kind of scares me a little bit. I mean, yeah, yes and no to a degree. You can, you can stop your pull through basically if the shot is not, because you're constantly pulling back and you can pause that for a brief second and then continue your pull back if you needed to. Yeah. The other thing that kind of scares me is, is what if, what if I'm, you know, in a position from the stand or the saddle where I'm not close to getting it to go off, probably not as big of a deal with like a hinge release or something, but with like a, a trad bow, it's like if I draw back and I'm short drawing by like a half an inch and I don't know it, I might keep expanding, expanding, expanding. That clicker's never going to go off. And then you got to come back. You just got to start over and say, okay, I didn't get there. And that's, for me, that's the biggest reason I use one on a traditional bow is as like a draw check. Because like you said, you could be, okay, I'm on my anchor, start expanding, and you're still a half inch from it basically. And you don't know that because you're just relying on that thing to click. After you've been pulling for like 20 seconds, you're like, all right, I just need to let down and figure out what's going on and then just start your sequence all over again. Mm Mm-hmm. It would be really nice to get to, you know, sort of a point when you, when you watch like those old videos of like Fred Bear and stuff where they make it look, he makes it look so smooth. Just draw back, hit anchor and that release. It just, it's, it's a lot harder in practice to make it look that yeah. smooth. Yeah. I've, I've purposely set my clickers to go off a, well past my anchor to be sure and pull through. And then the more I use it, the shorter it gets, I guess. So it's getting to that point. And then you just got back from the public land challenge. What yep. was that? Uh, Wednesday. I came back Tuesday night, and I had left. On, so yeah, I had left on late Thursday night. So this this so public kinda, land challenge was kind of uh, an idea between Aaron Warbritton from the Hunting Public and Dan Infault. They had gotten together and did a podcast a while back, and kind of thought, hey, you know, th- this would be a good idea to kind of have some kind of little you know event or competition or whatnot where you just bring some guys into a camp and then everybody's hunting public land on these new areas where they've never been to before and just see how everybody handles it differently. Take video footage of everybody's strategy, be able to post videos, you know, almost on a daily basis to kind of show what thought process is going behind each move. And then that was kind of the the idea for the challenge. And so the people that were down there were of course the hunting public, which on this trip, it was just Jake that had a tag and then Greg, Aaron, um, the two interns and Zach were basically helping, you know, do footage filming and scouting. And then there was me and then there was the hunting beast, which was Dan Infault and then Joe Rentmeister, Rentmeister. And then, um, Tyler Witt was, was gonna come, but then at the last minute he wasn't able to. So there would have been three guys from the beast, but there ended up being two and then Basically, everybody had a cameraman for the most part, not every hunt for every time, but the idea was that, you know, we could get this footage kind of collected every night. We'd, we'd come in from the hunt in the evening and just kind of dump everybody's footage onto the computers. And then the guys would basically spend the next 12 hours straight at McDonald's, basically editing and uploading video. Cause there's a lot of footage to sift through. I mean, every time I did a, a footage dump from my cameras, I was giving them like you know, 50 to 80 gigabytes of video. And I'm sure the other guys are similar. So you guys, it was all public land. How, how far away was this public land? How familiar with it? Um, kind of what was your, the game plan going into this? Yeah. So 
from, I guess, my house, I drove over a little bit over two hours to get there. So there's a lot of land in the region of Minnesota that we're at that is public. There's a lot of it that's also private too. Um, but I've basically driven through it. I've never hunted it before. I never scouted it before on foot. There's always kind of, you know, the rumors that there's bigger deer in this area because of the antler point restrictions. And there's also kind of, you know, the rumors around the state or that there's, you know, a lot of hunting pressure and there's a lot of squirrel hunters in particular that kind of throw things off, especially in the early season. So that was kind of the, um, I guess the, the overlying situation that we're going into the terrain gave us a lot of options. There's a lot of farmland down there. There's a lot of hill country down there. And there's also some river bottom and there's some marsh. So there's really a little bit of everything depending on what the guys wanted to go into. And so for me personally, I can't, I guess, speak hundred percent for everybody's thought process, but I went down there taking, you know, a boat, a kayak and a mountain bike, basically thinking I'll, I want to have the options to do basically any kind of a terrain habitat type that I want to based on a given day and, and how things are shaken out. And what I ended up doing once I got down there was I basically focused hundred percent on hill country just because that weekend was the opening weekend of waterfowl in Minnesota, which means that the Mississippi river is getting pounded with duck hunters. And then the marsh from what the people were saying, wasn't like, you know, super great in terms of fresh sign. There was sign, but a lot of it was like rut sign. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going, going to go straight into the Hills. I had a bunch of waypoints already marked in the Hills. And that was kind of how my game plan started off once I was there. So how many going into this, how much had you scouted it, uh, that area and how many, like you, you mentioned, you had a couple of waypoints set in there. Did you have waypoints for each of the different habitat types that were there? Or did you go into it knowing you were going to kind of focus towards the hill country first and then move, maybe move towards cropland and then marshes? Or did you go, just go into it with points all over the map and then kind of get Intel from other guys that were there to kind of determine where you needed to be based off what they were seeing? Yeah. I mean, I, I've had pre-scouted it basically for all the terrain types. So, you know, for river bottoms, I was looking for areas that might have potential bedding. You could see kind of areas where you had, you know, kind of shrubbier trees, a lot of those river bottoms that have mature trees. You look at the bottom and it's just like sandy and wide open. So I wanted to try and focus on areas that were a little bit thicker, you know, points that stick out into the river, other things that look like they could be potential bedding cover. For the marshes, I look for basically the same type of marsh stuff that I would look like look at going hunting at home. And then for hills, there's so many hills in that area. And, you know, a lot of the hills are intertwined sort of with the farmland. So it's not flat farmland. It's, it's you know, kind of like the stuff you're at in Missouri where it's a lot of hilltop fields and there's also a lot of, you know, kind of valley fields. And so for that type of terrain, that took the longest to pre-scout just because there's so many options. And based on like, you know, kind of leeward side betting theory, I wanted to try and maximize the odds and the efficiency of the scouting. So I looked on the Windfinder website and Northwest winds and Southeast winds are by far the most common, depending on, you know, if it's a cold front or if it's just kind of warm weather, bringing that southerly wind up. So I just focused on those two winds and I marked waypoints on basically every point that was heading those directions that I could find within the, the large areas of public land. And that alone was a ton of waypoints, like dozens and dozens of waypoints. There's so many options. So then beyond that, 
what I was kind of thinking was, okay, how do I narrow this down further? I went and looked at potential access spots and I said, you know, if there's like a, a Northwest wind betting point, where am I going to access this particular one? And can I get there without the wind blowing across that bed or without potentially being seen on the access route? And if the answer was no to that, then I just crossed it off. And that allowed me to whittle down those number of points by, you know, maybe half. And so now I still got a lot of waypoints more than I could potentially hunt on this trip way more. So then I was like, okay, there's, I guess, two things that kind of make sense to, to further narrow this down. One is that there could be spots that are more remote, longer distances to walk in. Maybe that allows me to distance myself and get into to some stuff that's less pressured. Or number two, maybe these deer are set up betting toward areas where they can see other people access, whether it's other deer hunters, squirrel hunters, etc. So then those were kind of the ones that I really focused on. And I kind of had maybe like a top five in my mind of lists of things that I wanted to try places. I wanted to try based on those winds. And the first day was Northwest wind, big cold front that was moving through. They had storms the night before I drove up. So then knowing that we're going to have a Northwest wind that made it pretty easy. I was basically only choosing between like two or three spots to go on blind to. So was your, was your strategy going into this to primarily try to hunt bedded deer on those, you know, areas overlooking the access points was that your primary strategy going into this compared to try to hunt over transition points funnels or you know hunt over a uh, food yeah so basically you know your kind of textbook hill country early season says that you know those deer are going to bet on points and they might be feeding on acorns very close to their beds at least the older bucks so that was kind of my plan is i wanted to try and get as close to where i thought the deer might be betting as possible I was assuming going into it that they wouldn't be making crop fields during daylight. I was assuming I'd have to get as close as I possibly could and just kind of play it by ear once I got on the ground to see how good the visibility was and how high the winds were just to see how close I could potentially get. But in terms of access, you know, whether it was a spot that was watching access or whether it was a spot that was just remote, I didn't really have, I guess, a preference, but I ended up trying a couple of each of those different options while we were down there. Yeah, just from, you know, what I watched of it, watched, watched pretty much what the hunting public put out and then watched yours, you know, it kind of seemed like that was the kind of overall theme for the most part was everybody was specifically, I mean, I know it's the beast method of hunting, um, trying to target bedded deer in those areas, um, you know, and I know in your case, you know, there was quite a few deer seen feeding out into agricultural fields later in the afternoon and things like that, and so I just didn't know if your strategy changed, did you kind of bail off of the, the hunting, clo hunting bedded deer, hunting near these areas where you think they're going to be bedded towards that, you know, shift towards food source kind of later in the hunt? Yeah, man, definitely had to adapt because what I had assumed wasn't a hundred percent what we were seeing. You know, I was expecting I'd have to be within a hundred yards of some of those points to be able to see daylight movement of larger bucks. But then when we got down there, it was like, you know, number one, like you said, some of these deer were hitting fields in daylight, especially the ones that weren't getting pressured. So there's obviously, there's a ton of hills and some of them that are harder to get to. If the private land people weren't also hitting it, those deer were basically still on their summer patterns, it seemed like. And so we would find, like on one particular day, I found, you know, very close to where I thought the deer would be bedding, a bunch of old signs, stuff that wasn't fresh, stuff that was worn down into the dirt, but just not fresh. 
So it's like, okay, clearly these deer are using these bedding areas at some time during the year, but they're not using them right now. And I think in a lot of cases, and I think the other guy saw this too, this time of year, there's so much habitat available that it's hard to really pinpoint where exactly they could be bedding. And we saw, at least I saw a combination of traditional hill bedding and farm country type bedding where they would be bedding a lot closer to the fields, but they were set up in such a way that you couldn't really get close to them. Yeah. I mean, almost, you know, maybe even in some of them fields, if there was a tree or two sticking up out in there, they would be bedded out in the crop almost or right, right next to it, basically compared to, you know, bedding farther away and using a long transition area to get to from bedding to feeding. Yeah. Yeah. Like the first night that we went out, we were trying to get as close as we could to a point, but just based on, you know, how things were looking when we got there, we ended up being like 160, 180 yards from where essentially we thought those deer might be bedding. And we had, we had does and we had a small buck basically come by and, and the does that we saw, even though we were sitting underneath white oak acorns, they were basically walking right through those acorns just to get up to the soybeans like two hours before shooting light. And then a little bit later on in the evening, maybe 45 minutes, an hour before I ended shooting light, we heard a bunch of blue jays, you know, coming down from the area that we thought maybe the deer, the bigger box would be bedded, but we never saw them. So it's like, okay, were they bedded there? And did they end up making it to that field? And they just were far enough away out of our sight on the route that they took that we never saw them. Or did they get up out of their beds and they, did they just, you know, slowly move 20 yards and start eating on an oak tree right there? We don't really know. Yeah. But that, that bigger one that we saw on, um, later in the hunt on the third hunt, that guy, I'm pretty sure he was probably only bedded, you know, within 50 yards into a CRP area and just basically standing up and walking right into an alfalfa field that wasn't getting hunted and the public wasn't getting hunted either. Cause it was so hard to access. Yeah. So he was just staged close to there, you know, yeah. not having to deal with anything and he hadn't been pressured to push him back further away. Yeah, so you take the same hunt and you move it into late October, November. A lot of that foliage is then down at that point. The bedding changes. I think you'd probably see a lot more of that sort of textbook hill country style bedding. So, you know, I noticed, you know, in the video, you guys seemed to, you were obviously, the more days you were there, the more you were getting on to deer. Like you mentioned, you you guys had seen that buck later in the hunt. That may have been your last day or second to last day even, um, you know, kind of, from the listener's perspective, if you're going to a public land out of state, you know, how many days do you think you would have needed to be able to capitalize on a buck of some sort? Hmm. That's a tough question. I'd like to have at least a week, at least a solid seven days would be nice because I mean, the issue is you get a, you get a hunt like that where, you know, we had four, I had basically four afternoons and the wind was doing a different thing two out of those four afternoons. We had two days that basically had northwest winds and two days that had south winds. Well, that, that changes things, you know, so it's like a, ideally you'd like to be able to string enough enough days that you can have kind of two different things going and be able to kind of learn it and then refine it. I mean, the other, the other challenge is you kind of start big and you kind of narrow, at least you'd like to. And if we would have had a northwest wind again that second day instead of having it switch to south, you know, I probably would have stayed in that same spot we hunted the first night and just tried to figure out a different way to get in there closer and maybe get closer to where those deer would be bedding. But instead we had the south wind, so I just went to a totally different hill and was basically hunting different deer and did that for the third day. And then the last day we got a northwest wind again. So it was like it, it switched up enough 
that it was like you're bouncing around more than I would have liked to and didn't have as enough enough opportunity to really fine tune and tweak an exact setup. You know, the other thing too, like that second to last day when we saw that big one, it's like if we'd had more days that next morning we got, we got access to walk that guy's off alpha field to get back there again. So it was like in an ideal world, if we had an extra three days, I would have taken that next day and basically just sat up a couple hundred yards away and just glass that field to see what happens. Is he still there? Is he coming out again? Where is he coming out? How can we set up on him? And we just didn't have that luxury because we didn't have enough days left, you know. What about, I noticed watching it, and I know I'm sure part of it was filming. Um, most everybody there only seemed to hunt afternoons. And I know you mentioned in yours or on one of there that that was because you were dumping and editing film. You know, would you, do you think your chances would have been increased by hunting in the morning? Or did many, did anybody who really hunt in the morning see any activity during those times? Well, I mean, Hayden shot his buck at 11, 15 a.m. Still hunting. And then I know Zach and, uh, Zach and Jake, they were out there in the mornings hunting, but I don't think they were usually set up in, in trees in the morning. They were basically covering ground and, you know, moving around and, and kind of half scouting, half hunting as they went, which I think is probably the, the way to go. If you got that extra time, you can cover more ground in the early part of the day. And then by the evening, you can go back to whatever you thought was best, you know? So having basically an extra four to six hours of scouting in. The thing that's tough with some of those accesses is, is that you might spend so much time and energy getting into a certain spot that by the time you finally get there, you're almost committed. So a lot of times too, like when I was basically just hunting in the afternoons, you know, throughout that morning, I'd be editing film, get to about lunchtime, eat lunch. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go here because if I go here, I got basically like an A and a B game plan. It's like, you know, strategy A, if it works, I'll set up for strategy A. And if I'm not seeing what I'm liking on strategy A, I'll have a backup plan B that I can do kind of in that same area without having to basically back it down all the way to the truck and drive somewhere else. Cause you wouldn't have enough time to do that. Yeah. I mean, it even seemed like in some of those instances or situations, you know, it was even still hunting at night because you got to, somebody got to plan A it wasn't what they were expecting. They moved to plan B, plan B still wasn't as good. And it's just like, well, we can either set up, you know, 10 feet off the ground, see what happens, or we can just keep moving and see what we can find. Yeah. I mean, there's enough cover that time of the year that realistically you can get a shot off at a year on the ground, you know? So it's like, why would we set up here on cold sign when we can just keep moving and hopefully that we eventually find the hot sign and, and at least be in the right area before it gets dark. Yeah. I think probably that's, you know, to me, one of the biggest takeaways that I got from it was looking at it was, you know, not being, being so adaptive to it. You know, you got there, you know, when you got there, it was right after the fresh storm. So you had everything that was on the ground was fresh signs. So mm -hmm. you could adapt your strategy based off that. And then, like you said, the access points, it took you guys, you know, so long to get these areas you wanted to hunt. If you got there, wasn't what you were expecting. Just keep hunting until I find what I need. Yep. Yeah. So it was a lot of I guess you'd call it in-season scouting. Whereas, you know, a lot of times if I don't have, if I'm going into like an area blind around home, it's a little bit tougher, I think, to, to do that portion of it, which is kind of what Dan and, and Joe seem to be doing is, you know, they get into some of those areas and they're kind of in the same boat. Whereas like if they got there and it didn't turn out to be what they wanted, it was like they didn't really have an opportunity to walk back to the truck and drive somewhere else. It's like they got to find something that's hot to be able to set up on. 
So, you know, being that it was, I know Dan and them, they took the driving distance from camp kind of to its fullest extent. Mm-hmm. They were commuting like three, three and a half hours to hunt basically. Yep. And hunting only in the evenings. You know, kind of with that being said, you said you were only like two hours from camp. You know, would you have, you think you'd have been better off to commute back towards what you were familiar with and hunt that area? Or were you just as just as well off to hunt in an unknown area around the, kind of the area that they had de- designated camp, basically? Well, I mean, certainly I would I would have had an advantage if I was driving back home to you know kind of the stuff that I've already hunted before, but I don't feel like that'd probably be like totally fair to be you know hunting stuff that I already have scouted and, and have hunted before. And at the same point, I wouldn't have been able to probably make that work just in terms of being able to do the footage and get any sleep at all. And plus, <laughs> I mean, I, I've wanted to hunt that region of the state for a long time. I just never have taken the opportunity because I got so much public land around Minneapolis that I can hunt that I haven't really had the, you know, the, the urge, I guess, to overcome that, to go drive down to the Southeast portion of the state and see what they have to offer. And I mean, with the APRs that they'd have done, there's a lot of mature buck sign. Definitely. I think more so than what we have around the Twin Cities, especially with all the, the hunting pressure that we have up here. So yeah, I don't know that I don't know that I would have necessarily done better hunting, you know, if I'd have driven further. Um I feel like I got onto good stuff just about every day. It's just a matter of having enough time in the woods to make something happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, from watching the video it seemed like you were you you guys were seeing deer from the ground, from the tree little bucks and then you guys seen the ended up seeing that big buck right there on the second to last day I guess it was you know I mean outside of that you know I think everybody's seen deer at least um a couple decent bucks and then you know Joe killed that pretty good buck had a lot of mass to it Mm-hmm. yeah his buck was I'd, I'd assume it was an older deer the one that he shot that was a real nice looking deer yeah it body on it was pretty good and you know it had a lot of mass didn't have a lot of time length but it was still a good public land deer oh for sure i don't think anybody's passing up on the deer on public land unless you know <laughs> there's a 190 walking around yeah I, yeah and most people don't know that's walking around public land for the most part right right yeah i'd say just kind of my my overall assessment of the quality of deer down there versus the quality of deer i have around at home i think we have really big deer at home where i'm at around minneapolis but there's not a ton of them like really good hunters can get on them or, or people get, can get lucky every now and then. Um, but there's not the overall, I would say like, like quantities or ratios that they probably have down in the Southeast. I mean, it, everywhere we went, it seemed like we we're finding big tracks, you know, whereas like you might, I can find big tracks around home, but it's a lot more infrequently that I find them that are that big. I was finding a lot of tracks that were legit, like four finger tracks down there. Man, yeah, I mean, it seemed like, like I said, everybody was finding. I may not have been super fresh sign, but they were finding good sign, you know, and just a matter of time before somebody catches up to one. Yeah, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of I rubs. Was, there's a ton of rubs down yeah. there too. A lot more rubs than we usually get around here, and I don't know if that has to do with the fact that there's maybe a better age structure down there, and there's maybe more more larger bucks running around that makes more competition, more, you know, terrain marking. I don't know if that, how much that plays into it, but there definitely seem to be, you know, per acreage, at least this time of year, more rubs down there. 
So another question for you. I know you normally self-film yourself all mm-hmm. the time, but I know on this particular trip you had a cameraman with you. Mm-hmm. So kind of just touch a little bit on that dynamic for you on how it may have been different um, setup time. You know, did the saddle help you any in setup time compared to, you know, them using a tree stand? Was there any issues, you know, with you having a cameraman or anything like that? Because I don't know, I don't know how that worked for you. Yeah. So basically, I mean, I was, I was for the most part carrying in everything I would have normally carried in in a hunt. I was carrying all the camera gear. I was carrying my sticks, wild edge traps, whatever. I was carrying in that hunt. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's what I'm used to carrying. So it wasn't that bad. And then whoever was the camera guy, they were basically just packing in either a lone wolf and sticks or just uh, a lone wolf by itself. Like Aaron, the first day he was carrying a, a lone wolf and four, or yeah, four B sticks. And then I had four sticks of my own. So we ended up just leaving a few sticks on the ground and just use a combination to get up the tree. And the setup time definitely took longer. Um, also due to the fact that we're taking multiple trips to get it up the tree. It was, we weren't using any aiders or anything like that. Um, just basically a bunch of sticks. So that aspect of it definitely took longer, uh, but we we're also leaving pretty early in the afternoon. So we were set up with, you know, plenty of time in the afternoon to be able to still get a good sit in. And then from the actual filming standpoint of it, it was way, it's way more advantageous to have a camera guy. I mean, just <laughs> like from the amount of B-roll and the quality of the B-roll that they're able to get, I, for me to get that as a cell filmer would have been next to impossible and would have taken me three times as long because I would be yeah. setting the camera up, walking past it, going back, getting the camera again. Whereas I can have a guy with a camera just basically walking behind me and getting some of these great shots. So yeah, run that, up in front of you and, you know, get you crossing the Creek. Whereas right, if right. you cross the Creek, you got to set the camera up, cross the Creek, then turn around and go back and get it. And you got to cross the Creek like four times just to get across. Yeah. From a footage quality comparison, there's, there really is no comparison. You know, having a camera guy is, is better and, and obviously he can always make sure that he's on the deer and the focus is right and all that kind of stuff. And it was nice just having somebody else, like at some of those longer access just to be able to, to talk to and kind of bounce ideas off of and have somebody else to kind of embrace the suck with on some of those hills. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, especially having somebody to bounce ideas off of, you know, a lot of what I thought was good in it was kind of the commentary between you guys looking at Onyx maps, talking about, you know, how you're getting there. Um, I know one of the ones on yours, you talked about, you know, you had Onyx up and you're like, yeah, we're going to cross this ditch right here because if we go up 50 yards and try to cross it, it's going to be hella steep. And he was like, I would have never thought of that. You know, it's things like that, that kind of communication right there is, is key and you can learn a lot from it. Yeah. And I mean, Aaron, especially too, he was picking up on little nuances in the sign that we were seeing too, that I would have probably glanced right over as well. And that was, that was kind of the next question is, you know, was there any big takeaways from you that you learned from any of those guys there, whether it be Dan, you know, hunting with a hunting public, you know, what kind of did you pick up from them, you know, scouting tactic, or like you said, um, small sign reading, you know, what did you kind of, what are some things you picked up from that? I think the biggest thing for me was just, you know, kind of the ability to pick up on the age of sign. You know, I mean, we kind of take that for granted and people talk about sign all the time and, and how fresh it is, but I don't think there's a lot of people that, that really do a good job at being able to tell if something was made this morning, a couple of days ago, a week ago, whereas all the guys that were in that camp, they're, they're all really good at that. You know, I mean, even like, I think, uh, Dan and Joe were talking about like seeing something that the deer were browsing on 
that Dan picked up on. He's like, oh, this is, this is browsed. And, you know, the amount of regrowth after the browse means it was, you know, probably eaten in, you know, this time period. Um, with tracks, it's a little bit easier to tell just in terms of like, you know, obviously we had the rainfall that first day. So, you know, if you got a fresh, sharp track after that rainfall, you know, it was made that day. Um, but like, even like in terms of the rubs, being able to tell if these rubs are brand new, opened in the last day or two, or if these things are a week old and, you know, hunting the marsh, like what Dan and Joe were doing. I mean, it's not easy to pick up on that kind of stuff. Is this sign made a week ago? Is this sign made yesterday? And that was kind of the, the, what ended up, I think, getting them on the right deer in the end, was just being able to tell what's hot right now and what's just, what's just not. And if you watch the videos in the hunting public, Dan, Dan says that kind of stuff in the videos. And I think that's really important stuff that people should pick up on. Cause I can't tell you that's, how many times in the past I probably sat on sign that was fresh enough to look fresh, but not so fresh that the deer was still there and still using that pattern. And that's big when you only have, you know, four to five days to hunt, you know, you can't be hunting on two day old sign. You need to be on, you know, that morning, you know, maybe the evening before and that's about it, you know, cause yeah. you're otherwise you're one step behind them. Yeah. And with the hunting public traveling around the country all the time, that's critical for them. I mean, if they are not able to read sign and be able to tell how fresh it is, I mean, that's, that's crucial for being able to figure out a place in a couple of days. Yeah. And getting videos out. And like you said, they're traveling, you know, all across the country, spending all the money and gas and things like that to get out there. You know, they need to make the amount of time they're there worth it to be able to harvest a deer. Yeah. I give, I give those guys huge props for just how they're able to produce that show. I don't think a lot of people watching the show necessarily knows what all goes on behind the scenes. It, it's literally, I mean, they might have one or two guys hunting at a given time, but everybody who's a part of that team is there's never like a down moment. Like they're always, somebody's doing something, editing footage, uploading video, taking footage, Later, yeah. doing scouting. It's a watching the, I guess it was the Kentucky hunt. You know, they talked about one yet two guys were hunting one. Well, one was hunting, one was filming. Uh, I think Ted was out scouting and Aaron was back, you know, at McDonald's editing. And they said he'd been there for like eight hours or something. Yep. You know, it takes a lot of will to sit in a McDonald's for eight hours and edit video to be able to put that episode out, you know, and you're not hunting. So, I mean, it's not the, you know, obviously his turn's going to come eventually, you know, but somebody's got to do all that. And so, yep. and then, you know, one guy's hunting, one's filming, one's scouting to help the other guy who's hunting, you know, so it's a huge team effort. And like you said, give props to those guys for that because that's a... I could only imagine how bad their vehicles look at the end of the season. <laughs> McDonald's wrappers and food crumbs everywhere. It's probably corn growing in that thing by the end of the year. Well, yeah, as long as you're eating the stuff and throwing it away in the McDonald's, you can keep it semi-clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they do a really good job, too, of think of just like, you know, they can switch off and they don't have to be the ones who are doing the hunt. They're all equally you know, willing to share whatever role they need to play. Yeah. I mean, you know, even while you guys were there, you know, they, um, you said only one of them had a tag, but they bailed out to go help Joe with his buck, pack mm -hmm. his buck out. And then the other guy, you know, they bailed out to go help him pack or pack his buck out. Yeah. And so, I, you know, it's not I think they were awake for like 30 hours at one point. Yeah. I didn't get back to the truck with Joe's buck till like 545 or something that was ridiculous yeah when they when they all came into camp the next day they looked like zombies <laughs> oh i bet and yeah then they had to drive three hours back to camp yeah oh i couldn't imagine yep 
I've already done that once this year. Nope, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, overall, that trip was just a blast. I mean, being able to talk to some of those guys that you kind of you kind of know through the online community, but you've never met in person, and just being being able to share camp and hang out with those guys and ask questions and talk about stuff, and that was really it was a fun trip. Yeah. So, do you have any other takeaways other than you know the scouting techniques? Um, you know other things you learned. I mean, obviously you've seen Dan's stick that's supposed to come out. What mm-hmm. were your thoughts on that? You know, kind yeah. of give the podcast listeners some thoughts. Yeah. I liked, I like Dan's sticks. They were the first times that I've had to be, or I've actually gotten to hold the sticks in my hand and kind of play around with them. And we used them on that first hunt. Uh, they were prototype ones. So they did, were still had kind of like that, you know, shiny metal finish on them. Um, and they didn't have any style strips on them at that point. So what I was able to assess from them was kind of how solid they were on the tree how lightweight they were, how easy they were to use, how easy they were to stack, all that, those kind of things. And from that standpoint, I mean, I, I really liked them. I mean, from a weight perspective, they're basically the exact same as the, the ones I put together, which I, I think is fantastic. You know, his has the buckles, but if I put buckles on mine, they'd be pretty similar, right? The only difference that if I had bought Dan sticks, you know, I'd put stall strips on them and I'd silence the buckle or maybe swap to like a rope mod. But then you're like, you know, at that same level of, of stick that I'd be really happy using. They're the perfect length. They have more tread on the, the teeth themselves. The teeth on the, you know, so if you look at kind of the picture of the steps, they got those kind of square edge teeth on the top. And then the teeth that bite into the tree are sharp. They're kind of like a bat wing or like a six point bracket type of sharpness. So once they stick on the tree, they don't rotate around at all. They just, they stick and there's no, there's no moving parts. So some of that stuff kind of seemed a little bit sharp on the prototypes, but Dan was saying that, you know, they get all that stuff bead blasted on the production part. So it's not an issue. And that's one of the big things on his stick. Two things that I really like is, um, the non-folding steps, one on each side, you know, my muddy pro sticks, they fold. I don't like them to fold. I always leave them out. And then the non-pivoting standoff. Um, so kind of the beast logo standoff doesn't pivot. Um, yep. those are to me are the two of the biggest things that I really like about them. Obviously the longer step spacing, I could probably use them a little longer, but you know, I just, for me that, um, muddy cam cleat rope system is, is just easy for me. It's probably a little heavier than a rope mod or probably Dan's buckle, but for me, it's just so simple and easy. Yep. And the other thing too, that was kind of interesting about Dan sticks were that, uh, you can stack them together vertically and they stack in line with one another. So they're not like creating an angle as you stack each stick. So your overall, you know, kind of top to bottom package stays the same. And the way that they're tolerance to stack together, it's not a super tight, like press fit to get those sticks to, to stack together. There's a little bit of a, a loose play in there, which he said was intentional because it allows you to basically just pick up one stick off the stack and not make any noise. Whereas if you got a nice tight squeeze, then you're, you know, you're kind of holding the other three sticks and you're, you're pulling the top one off and hopefully you don't make any noise. And then if guys want that, you know, kind of nice tight squeeze, then they can put a little piece of like stealth strip or something in there in the, in the gap and take, you know, basically get rid of that. But I thought that was kind of interesting. That? that wasn't something I would have thought of. Yeah. That whole vertical stack concept, that's really interesting, you know, because most sticks, stack kind of a backwards so your overall length adds about three inches probably three to four inches depending on the number of sticks you have whereas i guess these stay the same 26 inches i'm guessing um 
length. They don't shift back as they go. But on the, the tolerance thing, you know, how was that when they were packed? Did you have any rattle from them? Um, because there was that little bit of loose tolerance once they were stacked. No, it was, did you strap, no, were, it was were you able to strap them down? I mean, like I said, we didn't even have, down. we didn't have them style stripped or anything at all. The buckles were just bare right. metal and, you know, we were just using bungees basically to hold them on the stands and that's enough tension to make sure there's no rattle. You just have to be careful. And I, I've kind of been so conditioned to using style strips on everything that, uh, <laughs> like with the buckles and stuff, I had to be really careful with just like how things are swinging around. Like my release would hit the, the stick and I'd make a little click and I'm like, man, I'm not even used to like having these things be like issues in the back of my mind just because I've been using those things for so long. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, you know, you can be totally quiet with them, even stock as is. I would add the stuff just because I'm so used to it and I like having that little peace of mind. So if it's, if you guys, if you do this again next year, if you do to participate, what are some things that you might, you might change um, going into an event similar to this next year? Or if you go to a, an out of state hunt, something that would be similar to this, what are some things you might change going into that? I mean, obviously you went in prepped, like you said, you went with a boat, you went with a mountain bike, you went with everything you need because you didn't know what you were going to have. Mm-hmm. But are there, you know, other strategies, um, you know, more waypoints, less waypoints that you would do going into something like this next year? I probably wouldn't have done things a whole lot differently because I mean, you know, time is, time is cheap when you're on the front end and you're looking at the map and you're, you're picking waypoints. But once you get on the ground, I mean, they're really just a, a first step. Once you're on the ground, that's when you're really starting to, to fine tune and, and tweak and, and learn. So it's like, I don't necessarily think more waypoints would have helped other than, you know, they would have just given you the opportunity. If you're going through the effort of making more, more waypoints might allow you to see a spot that you might've glanced over the first time that actually looks really good. I think I would have really focused on areas that are number one, hard to access and overlook some type of access over any other type of scenario. Those seemed like at least early season, the types of spots that had a lot of good deer sign. Um, and in fact, the, the one hunt that we did, I think was the day three video. It was like my, my second evening hunt. That was the only time that we ran into another hunter and it was on like a two mile access, but it was an easy two mile access. You know, it was basically just like a, like a farm path, farm tractor path that basically could walk in on. And, uh, the stuff that we did where it was just like almost vertical right out of the parking lot or we had to cross the river. It was like, you didn't see any hunter sign for the most part. And it was a lot of deer sign. And even though it was maybe close to the parking lot distance wise, you were able to separate yourselves just because nobody else was sort of willing to get back there. That's something I'll say that really surprised me watching the video was the number of even just vehicles that you guys encountered um, at parking lots and things like that, not including hunters in the woods, but just the number of vehicles that early in the season that you guys encountered on public land, you know, maybe it's, that's normal up there. But for me, you know, thinking about growing up in Missouri on public land, man, I didn't hardly see anybody hunting, especially bow season. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, depending on where everybody was at, there seemed to be more squirrel hunters, especially on the weekend hunts, those two days in the parking lots when we actually did the hunts, like, like Friday where we parked on the side of the road, there was no other vehicles. There was no other hunters on Saturday. Um, there was one other vehicle in the parking lot that we went to and it ended up, I think being the guy that we ran into two miles in 
but it wasn't, you know, until we were, you know, almost two miles in that we could finally see his boot tracks in the dirt and say, Hey, there's this guy has come back this far. Right. He's probably, I would assume looking at the map and saying, Hey, I'm going to distance myself from everybody else by going in two miles. Whereas realistically, like in hindsight, we could have went to hills that were a lot closer to the parking lot and they probably would have been just as good, if not better, because nobody was going into those hills. Everybody was just taking the easy path to get back two miles in. And then, um, Monday, there was no other vehicles in that parking lot. So I think there's enough land around that you can either find spots that have a lot of other hunters, or you can find spots that are sort of overlooked as well. You know, there's the nice thing about that part of the state is there's a lot of options, but that also means that there's a lot of cover being early season. And it means it's really hard to pinpoint exactly where to go. You know, how many waypoints did I find on the, on the map before the hunt? It could have been fantastic, but I would never know because we didn't have the time to go check them out. Right. You know, you probably had 60 waypoints going into it and checked 20 maybe or 10. Yeah. You know, and you could have missed some of the better ones, but you'll never know just because, like you said, there's so much cover, so much forage. You know, it's just so difficult to hunt. But now, you know, we kind of look, look forward into the future. It's like, would I ever go back down there? Well, if I go back down there for like a spring hunt or something – then I can take those 60 waypoints, knock them all out in, you know, a weekend or two. And now I have way better intel that I could use for like a following fall hunt. You know, if we take this kind of as like a, you know, four days and you're done, I think we probably could have done the best you could have done. But, um, looking at it in kind of like a, you know, two, three, four or five year plan of hunting an area, I think that's, that would make a difference. How much difference do you think it would have made for the public land challenge if it was hosted kind of in a different state altogether. Cause I know like the hunting public had some, a friend that was in the area. He killed a buck. I know, I think Dan and them said they called a buddy and he kind of gave them kind of advice on, you know, where to look, what kind of direction to go to, you know, kind of how much, how much difference do you think it would have made say if they would have shifted this to like public land in Oklahoma or public land in, you know, Ohio or somewhere where a whole lot of these people don't hunt, you know, would that have really changed the dynamic a lot? You know, cause say if it would have been in a, a state where there wasn't marshland for Dan and them to go hunt, you know, how much do you think that would have changed the overall knowledge base that would have been kind of projected? I don't know. I mean, I think that the group of guys in that group are, are good enough of hunters that they would figure out something. You know, I think if Dan didn't have the marsh, he would have figured out a way to hunt the hills. He just had more confidence in the marsh that time of year. So that's what he decided to do. And then, you know, same thing with the hunting public. I think every place they go, they figure something out, you know, and even if, even if there's guys that are, you know, offering up advice, there's usually enough land going around that, you know, say like if I would have known somebody in Southeast Minnesota that said, Hey, check out this, this region of this area, it might be good, but there's a lot of other spots in that area that are good too. Right. And just by going in blind, I think you can still find a lot of those types of areas. So I think it probably, it may have made a difference, but I don't think it would have made a big difference. I think people still would have been doing the same stuff in terms of, you know, finding hot sign and, and getting on deer. Hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, from watching it, it seemed like, you know, they had friends that were in the area able to call and say, Hey, you know, kind of point me in the right direction. So it really, to me, it seemed to shorten the learning curve obviously you know you're only there for a certain number of days mm -hmm. so you're going to use all the resources you can you know but i just wondered if you know going to somewhere like that would have changed 
more people's strategies on how they tried to find those areas. You know, because Dan and them were pointed towards that marsh. Yeah, they still had to bounce around on those islands to figure out which one of those islands had the most sign on it. You know, so I just was curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and if I were also, if I were ever to go back to that same area, I don't think I would go there early season. I think early season I would be better off hunting the type of stuff that Dan and Joe hunted because it's a little bit more pinpoint, a little bit easier to find exactly where those deer are bedding. And, but right. I, but when I would go back there would be like late October, early November, maybe during the firearm season when the woods looks different, the leaves are down and you got some rut activity going on. So you're able to then use some of those, you know, pinch points and funnels and hard terrain features that you were talking about earlier in the podcast and sort of hunt the, hunt the terrain more so than trying to hunt the deer and just have the confidence that there's enough big deer around that you're eventually going to have something big walk through. I think that'd be a pretty fun hunt down there because I think, you know, kind of early season, the ability to pinpoint in a marsh type habitat would sort of sway the, the success toward that end of the spectrum. Whereas there's just more, more larger deer in the area that the odds that one comes through one of those pinch point type spots while you're down there hunting, I think the, the odds kind of switch more to that type of habitat at that point of the, during the year. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you lose all that cover. Most of the most of the leaves are down, so you lost most of the cover. They're having to bed farther from feeding, you know, so those transition areas become, you know, more suitable for hunting that time of year, I guess. Yeah, and I think, too, if it was during the rut, I probably would focus, I would assume, more on areas that have maybe, like, hidden hills, wooded hills types of areas that are between not necessarily like right on agriculture, but in areas that, you know, lead from maybe one agricultural area to another. Whereas like during this trip, a lot of the hills that we were focusing on, we we're focusing on hills that, you know, maybe had points that were adjacent to, you know, private agriculture where those deer were figuring were probably bedded close to the ag. And then they probably also have acorns there too. Uh, but that those types of spots are probably going to attract more firearm hunters in Minnesota come during the rut because our, Right. I think our season for firearms starts November 3rd this year. But if you can get into some of those areas where maybe you have like valley fields, but then the hills themselves are all wooded, but they've got saddles and, you know, pinch points and steep cuts that have hard terrain funnels for deer. I think those would be kind of the areas that would be a little bit more enticing or appealing to be able to set up over. Yeah, I would agree. I would tend to think that they would favor those areas. So what's next? What do you have coming up? I know you're going to be, by the time this podcast release, you're going to be here in Utah on vacation for a few days, but what's the, kind of what's the plan after that? Yep. So basically I have three, three weekends of, of Metro hunts planned this year. One of them I just got done with, and there's two more, one that's early October, one that's late October. So those weekends, I'll basically just be doing those. But outside of those weekends, and like you said, I'll be gone the next week uh, to be in Utah. But I'll essentially then have, let's see, one, two, two weekends in October that I'll be able to hunt public land. I'll probably focus on Wisconsin. And then depending on how the metro hunt shakes out, if I still have a tag, I'll probably drive down to like southeast Minnesota to do uh, some shotgun hunting down there. 
And then depending on when we try to, to do the Missouri hunt, that'll get thrown in probably somewhere around that time frame too. So it's kind of a play by ear at this point. And then Wisconsin's firearm season is November, it's usually the third weekend. It's whatever Saturday starts right before um, Thanksgiving. So I think it'd be, yeah, the 17th this year. So 17th through the 25th is Wisconsin season. Yeah, I think my plan right now, I think I'm going to be back in Missouri like the 25th of October through probably the 11th or 12th. Their firearm season starts on the 10th. So my plan is to kind of hunt that last two weeks before the firearm season. It's kind of my plan. Um, and then I think one of those weeks you may kind of try to come down and join me. Um, so, yeah, outside of that, I'm hoping to get out, chase some elk and deer, uh, be this weekend and Monday would be my plan. So, so then is your plan, I guess at this point, all compound for those are you doing all trad or what? Um, out here, it'll be all compound. I think when I go back to Missouri, I'm actually going to bring both. Um, I'm going to bring my tribe halo left-handed, um, thumb shooting. Uh, try to stick a dough with it in Missouri for sure. Um, but here for the most part, it's, uh, it's going to be all compound from here on out. Gotcha. Yeah. I'll be rocking the compound for anything that's considered out of state, <laughs> but, uh, which is most of my trips essentially for the rest of the year. Well, if you drive to Missouri, you better bring the, the trad bow as well. I'll bring them both. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm so. not, if I'm not flying, I don't have to pick and choose. Just throw it all in the truck. Yeah, makes it easier. Yeah, that's gonna be the hard part is getting, getting all my stuff back to Missouri. I guess I'm just gonna. I got a couple extra saddles laying around, so I think I'm just gonna put a saddle together, buy another Doyle's gear hoist, and just send it all to Missouri. And probably gonna have my um, Eno Pow climbers. That's probably all I'm gonna run out there. Nice. So I'm gonna send them back and and run them. Well, that sounds like a plan. Man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Ready to get back in the in a tree in the hardwood forests. Um, I miss it. Absolutely. That'll do it for this week. As a reminder, please make sure to follow and subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on social media and wherever you happen to stream your podcasts. Please leave the network a review on iTunes. And also, if you haven't already, you really need to check out the Hunting Public and the Hunting Beast. I'd guess that most of our regular listeners are aware of those two groups. They're the real deal, full of knowledge, woodsmanship, and have great content available. The best place to find The Hunting Public is to type in The Hunting Public on YouTube, and you'll be able to find them. They're also on social media. And then The Hunting Beast, the forum name is thehuntingbeast.com. Thanks for listening.